This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 13th of May 2023 on Monocle Radio. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. And this is Monocle on Saturday. And not just any Saturday, it's Eurovision final Saturday. So going through the papers with me today is superfan, writer and artist Sean Pattenden. And we'll check in with Monocle's Helsinki correspondent to get a sense of the Eurovision fever gripping Finland this weekend. Plus, we'll have a preview of the Taipei Art Fair and... Might we also learn that Donald Trump, Donald Trump as we live and breathe, is also a crook, a grifter and a prize buffoon who has never picked up a book except those he has pretended he wrote. Verily, the can is open and the worms are everywhere. And Jim Muller looks back on the last seven days. That's all coming up here on Monocle on Saturday. First, here's the news. Moscow has acknowledged that its forces have fallen back north of Ukraine's battlefield city of Bakhmut after a new offensive in a retreat that the head of Russia's Wagner private army called a rout. In the US, the Biden administration has begun implementing a sweeping policy shift on the border with Mexico as a COVID-era order that had allowed the swift expulsion of many migrants expired and new asylum restrictions took effect. Facing concerns that the end of Title 42 could strain US border facilities to breaking point, officials were keeping a close eye on the movement of migrants that have reached record numbers in recent days. Leaders of the Group of Seven, G7 countries, are set to discuss concerns about China's use of economic coercion in its dealings abroad as part of their larger joint statement next week, according to a US official. The statement, a likely component of the overall communique that will be released by leaders during the summit in Hiroshima, Japan, is expected to be paired with a broader written proposal on how the seven advanced economies will work together to counter economic coercion from any country. And residents of the tiny Swiss village of Brienz have been evacuated because of the risk of an imminent rock slide. The fewer than 100 villagers and their cows were given just 48 hours to pack what they could and abandon their homes. Two million cubic metres of rock is coming loose from the mountain above and a rock slide could obliterate the village. And that's your Monocle Radio News. It's Eurovision Day. We're so excited. <laughs> Sean, you love Eurovision. I do love it and I do love it now. Yes, especially it's getting better and better every year. Yes. Uh, so Sean is Sean Pattenden. She is an artist. She's a journalist. She's a broadcaster. She's also an author, uh, has written many books. How many books have you written? Uh, over 10, I'm afraid. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's prolific. Mm. Now, something else you've been doing for 10 years now is the Eurovision Live Draw. Tell us what that is. Yes, for 10 years I have been the most stupid person on the internet every May by drawing the acts on Eurovision, that's 26 acts, in real time as they appear on the TV and have always been collecting money for charity. And it's just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And this year we're collecting for the British Red Cross Ukraine appeal. Um, Last year we raised over a grand and a half um, because people can visit my Just Giving page. They can pledge anything, a small amount or a massive amount, and they might win a drawing. So that's the thing. A watercolour painting might be yours if you pledge some money. And so it's all 
all done on the night and it's all very exciting and also completely terrifying. Um, so t- just talk me through this. A Eurovision song is not very long. It's three minutes or less. Yeah, it's absolutely that. And so I have a stack of postcard size watercolour paper and I have to I have to do it in real time. And I take pictures, I do it as proof. And there's nothing on the paper beforehand and I have to look at the TV and then just paint what I see. Um, and in that sense, that's why it's so terrifying. And it can be quite splodgy. It can get quite sort of, you know, vivacious <laughs> The brushwork. But yes, it's wonderful. I mean, you used to, you know, try and drink a glass of wine with it. There's no time to even drink a glass of wine when you're doing it at that point. And then I take a picture and I put it immediately on the Twitter. And so people can see it and retweet and share. And then it sort of builds that momentum from there. And you you can sort of access, you can buy through Twitter. That will send you off to the Just giving page, page. yes, yes. So what are you? S-I-A-N? Underscore Superman. Shams, on Twitter, so Shams follow please. Yeah. On Twitter. Well, let's let's continue on you on mm. on on both Ukraine and Eurovision. As we know, of course, uh, Eurovision can't take place in Ukraine this year, although Kalush Orchestra won last year. Uh, so instead, it's it's happening in Liverpool. I'm telling you stuff you already know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one person will not be there and not addressing by video, and that is Vladimir Zelensky. And there's a bit of a political row about it. Yes, as ever, there's going to be some ructions if he's not there, but there will be ructions if he is there. I don't think you can win on this one. Um, But the European Broadcasting Corporation just say, no, it's an apolitical show, which it's not really if Liverpool are hosting. We're hosting for the Ukraine. But they're, they're, they're really set against him appearing and Rishi Sunak saying, well, why isn't he not appearing? And I can see why he's not. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's, it, yeah, and it's it some kind of precedent, doesn't it? But but yes. you're absolutely right. I mean, these are extraordinary times. Absolutely. Uh, and it would be good to kind of acknowledge that in some way. But this is I front page is, of many yes, of the papers Yes, today. I think it is acknowledged, though, in a sense that this is an extraordinary year um, for Eurovision. And it is deeply political. Yeah, yeah. But, but, I mean, I'm quite sure Zelensky will be cheering on Ukraine. <laughs> I imagine so. <laughs> Um, But but, but it is, I mean, in terms of of winners, Ukraine won last year when the world's eyes were focused on Ukraine, when everybody Mm. was kind of rooting for them. It could have been said to have been a political win. I wonder if they'll do just as well this year because, again, of, of what's moving people to vote. I have a feeling they will, and it's changed because there is a public vote. There is a people's vote. And now it's the world can vote rather than just the people of Europe. So that could swing it. I mean, it really could, unless they go for the Edgar Allan Poe song. <laughs> Which is fantastic. <laughs> Which is wonderful, isn't From it? Which Austria. will start yeah, yeah, the, the whole proceedings. <laughs> yes. So, look, there are a number of kind of um, ideas of how to write a perfect Eurovision song. Um, and uh, But I have to disavow us of some uh, popular myths, which is key change. There hasn't been a key change in 15 yes. years, as a, as a winner, yeah. yeah. Incredible, isn't it? Because yeah. you assume the key change thing that lifts the song. And this year there isn't a single key change. Uh-huh. Extraordinary. Uh-huh. Also, minor key, a song in a minor key yeah, does much better. Yeah, uh, yeah. And um, sort of looking at various moods over the year, apparently this, this year it's, it's fiery, it seems to be the mood. <laughs> lying down we notice there's a lot of lying down this one in the in the stage and i think they've banned fire or something i was looking for all the exploding uh, pianos and i couldn't spot any on yeah, the, uh, yeah. yeah. but i mean this this then begs the question is if you can isolate those things that that you see in winners could you in fact create the perfect song using ai 
You see, I think you probably could, and that's probably not a very fashionable thing to say, because you do have to have the hookiest song. People will have only heard it two or three times sometimes. You have to have something that just goes right into the consciousness and delivers. As you say, it's less than three minutes per song. That is not a long time to build up and do that sort of thing. So you could tap it into a computer, I'm sure, and see what it came out with. You would also have to sort of tap in chaos, darkness. I mean, some of the uh, some of the engines are really quite frightening. Croatia's quite frightening this year. Um, go and have a look at them and <laughs> be put off your breakfast. <laughs> uh, no, I mean it's it's true. But uh, let's let's pursue that yes, thought yes, on AI, AI because yeah. um, the Times uh, and I think many other papers too uh, have uh, stories about uh, the dangers of AI, but insiders warning about it. Yeah. So this is building and building. We know that a few people have resigned recently or there's been some waves about AI starting to become quite troubling but more and more people seem to be talking about it and in the Times Professor Stuart Russell who's co-authored one of the most popular books on academia for AI is really saying we have to put the brakes on now and is teaming up with other people in the tech sphere um, to say that, that it's ungovernable and what we've tapped in to AI is, oh, think like a human and do that. Like human is actually maybe one of the worst things to do is just amassing so much knowledge, but not saying that this is for the benefit of humans. Rather, it's a rival to humans is within the system. And for what is sort of that that chat over a coffee of AI, of course, you know, it would help me, you know, buy a house, write a novel, all those sorts of things. It's starting to feel quite serious. And the headline in this AI could be like an alien invasion. You think, oh, I see, maybe... If these sorts of people are talking about it, who absolutely know, we do have to think about it and do have to hope that uh, the people who know better are working on something to sort of control, say, put brakes on. Yeah. Now, he recently signed an open letter which warned that AI labs were locked in an out-of-control race to develop and deploy Mm. ever more powerful digital minds that no one, not even their creators, can understand, predict or reliably control. He signed that letter. So did Steve Wozniak, the Apple co-founder, and so did Elon Musk. Yes. Uh, now, Elon, of course, per, per, perpetually in the news. Mm. Um, what's he been up to now? He's appointed the new CEO of Twitter. And what he feels that she should do with this, apparently she's a velvet hammer, which means she's a bit tough in negotiations. But he wants it to, to move it from being a social networking site, which is a chronological feed, which apparently makes very little money, even though the ads are, you know, vaster and vaster and coming with more frequency. Um, He wants it to turn into something like the Chinese app called WeChat, where it's called X, it's called the Everything app, and you can look at your Twitter feed, but also you can order food or a taxi or presumably buy a yacht or whatever his next plan to do is. Um, And will that work? I mean, I really do wonder... If that's what people want, giving yeah. giving you something that you don't want, so it's her job, um, the new CEO uh, Linda Vaccaria, is it Vaccarino? Yeah, and and so she's she's taking over, and, and this is yes. going to be a whole. So one thing that I've noticed, <laughs> one thing that I've noticed on Twitter today, is that um, uh, Finland has gone completely mad <laughs> uh, about about Eurovision. Yes. So the political parties. Have all have all changed their logos for today uh, to to reflect the green sleeves <laughs> of the of the uh, the Finnish entrant. <laughs> It's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. I am now seeing stories when I'm looking up Eurovision. Obviously, you say a big fan of 
have people had enough <laughs> already because it's taking over the world? But I love this. I think Rishi Sunak should be sort of, I don't know, a Union Jack uh, suit on or something <laughs> like that. Well, I'd absolutely love, I love these green sleeves and I think we should hear more about it and more about the Finnish entry because uh, on the line we have uh, Petri Burtsov, who is, of course, our Helsinki correspondent. Petri, are you there? Yes, uh, good morning. And let me just get this straight. You are not wearing the green sleeves? <laughs> Well, I have got a green jumper on, but I have to say that that was unintentional. <laughs> I mean, is literally everyone there doing it? Yes, it's it, and it's not only uh, human beings actually, because I I, uh, I saw just yesterday at the Helsinki railway stations so or the giant statues that are sort of guarding the entrance to the to this historic building. They've they've also been dressed up in these uh, green sleeves, and not only the green sleeves. I mean, the, I saw our local bakery downstairs is selling caria uh, pastries, this sort of green apple um, apple pies, um, and, and you know, I, school kids are are making them in class. These green sleeves, and it's just and you mentioned the political parties and one nice detail is how how you know um for example, I saw the Finnish foreign ministry now. They made a song kind of with alternative lyrics to the same tune of this Garia uh, song, Cha Cha Cha, where they hope, they wished for a speedy entry of Sweden into the NATO. So, you know, they made it into a diplomatic tool as well. It's, it's completely nuts. I mean, but it's kind of wonderful, isn't it, that it brings community together so much? That is absolutely true, and and especially for Finns, who you know we are perhaps a little bit more introverted than um, most European nations are, and it's just lovely to see this the sense of community that that this uh, this song fosters. And I think it, there's something about this the story of uh, Garia or Yere, as his first name is, um, um, that resonates a lot with the Finns. You know, he was practically a nobody up until the Eurovision uh, sort of qualifying qualifiers in in Finland, and you know we knew nothing of. Him. He comes from rather humble backgrounds. Um, lives in Vantaa, a city adjacent to uh, to Helsinki. And this song is really about, you know, he. It, the, the lyrics say that he's leading a normal life. He had a tough week at work, and now he's uh, he has his first pina. Actually, he has two pina coladas, and he's holding on to them, and he's getting into the groove. And it's you know, it's something that so many Finns, and not only Finns, but you know, I guess Finns are the only ones who understand the lyrics. But you know, it's something that you can identify with this this feeling of you know letting go and just you know go. Going with the flow. Now, there was a rumour that the former Finnish Prime Minister, Alexander Stubb, was one of the backing dancers. Is that true? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's, his, it's his double double ganger. It, it looks exactly like him. And he tweeted that it's it's actually him. So some, I guess some people thought it was it was actually him. But no, no, uh, it wasn't. And I, I also want to share an interesting detail. So this guy... Um, uh, this kind of green sleeves, this green polero of so- of sorts. It's been actually designed by one of Finland's foremost fashion designers. This guy called Temu Murimäki. He used to he used to work for the likes of Gucci in in in, um, in Milan. So you know, it's interesting that uh, you would just by looking at him, you think that he you know he maybe like came up with it himself. But it's actually carefully thought out, and also his dance routine is really carefully uh, choreographed with with some of Finland's leading dancers. Uh, and he's uh, described as looking like the sheriff of Nottingham in a queer punk adaptation of Robin Hood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that sounds about right. Uh, now, uh, Finland is actually number 13 in the running order, and that's, I think, the very end of the first half. Do you think that's, that'll be a, a, a good position? I think people have won from that position beforehand. 
Yeah, it's you know I think um, the the so-called Eurovision pundits uh, you can maybe ask Fernando about this, but they say that it would it's usually better to perform in the second half because then you know you're in people's sort of top of mind and people remember the performance better. But it's actually the last song before the break, um, and it has some like quiet, uh, so more melancholic. Uh, pop songs before it so it's going to be quite nice in terms of the sort of the drama of the whole first half that you have these quiet songs and then you have this completely wild sort of heavy metal pop uh, electro song that uh, just makes uh, the public explode before the break well i think finland's going to explode if they win aren't they (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Finland has already exploded, but we have this thing when Finland, uh, whenever Finland wins anything, be it an ice hockey world championship or whatever, we um, we say that, well, the Finnish expression is um, let's meet at the square. So people just, you know, no matter what time it is, people leave their homes and they go to the public squares and, and, and get maybe a bottle or two of, of wine or sparkling and, and uh, go there and celebrate. So, you know, the squares of, of Helsinki and other cities are already preparing for a big party tonight. It's going to be quite late, actually, Saturday night, so people can be heading over there from bars. It's going to be one giant party everywhere tonight, isn't it? <laughs> it, 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 it is, and it's it's interesting how, uh, of course, the song is in Finnish uh, and Gary has English. It's we we call it the so-called rally English, but it's also wonderful how he's so like self. You know, he he's so confident. He doesn't he knows that he doesn't speak perfect English, but it's okay with him. And that's also something that Finns are are usually not like. That Finns are really a, a little bit ashamed and shy if they don't speak any language perfectly so so i just i just love how he how he performs and his song is in finnish but he ends his song with one sentence in in kind of broken english he says it's crazy it's party <laughs> <laughs> well petri i'm wishing you and all of your country people a crazy party tonight Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, that's Petri Bertsoff there, who's talking to us from Helsinki. And of course, it is a worldwide party. And Sean Patton, who's still with me, uh, Sean, uh, you, you mentioned that the voting has changed and the whole world can vote. Yes, absolutely. So that really is the thing that will swing it. So we will have an idea of how it's going and we'll get the voting in from the countries, the host countries. But then it's this wonderful idea that the chaos will reign and this arbitrary vote will come in from the public, which Mm. is, of course, such a logical idea. They haven't done it before until last year. Um, But, yeah, I mean, that's what makes it so exciting is that we actually don't know what's going to happen. And winning is quite important, isn't it, in this one? I mean, in terms of soft power, it really, you know, catapults a nation up up that scale. Um, Now, what's interesting, of course, and this has been much debated over the years, is the fact that Australia is part of Eurovision (laughs) and you would think that those two things were mutually exclusive. Uh, But I wonder if that now means that we're going to see more and more countries that aren't... uh, if this could be a worldwide competition. It could be, that, but then how do you whittle down all those contestants? And this is a very Western style of music. We're not talking what is you know laboriously called world music here. This is verse, chorus, verse, chorus stuff. So would that sort of muddy the water in that way, that this is about pop music in that way? Or does it then bring in all sorts of other influences, which actually would be really exciting? I mean, can you imagine if it? South Korea was in it? <laughs> Just change the dynamic completely. They'd win every year. <laughs> You reckon, um, yeah. But I, yeah. I mean, so, okay, if you've got Australia in, why mm. not Papua New Guinea? Mm, they've been in the news this week, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. yes, they have. 
<laughs> Very nicely done. The Commonwealth Minister, Patrick Gitney, has lost his job because of his daughter on TikTok, because she uh, was preening on TikTok, um, because she'd spent lots of money, lots of government money, on her and her father's trip to the coronation. And um, this has not gone down well with Papua New Guinea, the ministers, or indeed the people of it, where the poverty line, um, the poverty is very, very high there. Yeah. I mean, it's an extraordinary story. So he comes here for the coronation, yes. his daughter's his plus one, and yeah. then she makes all these videos in the designer shops. But his reaction to it has been extraordinary. I mean, I think that's the thing, is, is rather than saying, OK, I fess up, we shouldn't have done this, and maybe there's a way to pay back that money, he's called um, the people of Papua New Guinea primitives. And her has been and repeatedly said, <laughs> but they don't understand. Of course, we would do this. This is ministerial. This is what I do. Um, so yes, the primary reason says um, someone in Papua New Guinea is the manner in which the money has been spent and everything has been handled so badly. And he has say not covered himself in glory after the event by trying to to back himself up. So it's an absolute mess. Absolute mess. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would like to talk now about plastic cups. Yes. They may not ruin the universe after all. Apparently there's, they've, they've found a way in which they can be uh, made with some kind of additive. Yes, an additive which makes them biodegradable, um, which you thought they might have thought of before, but still the funding is coming in. They've trialled them and they were trialling them last year at uh, a rugby match in Twickenham, um, but they've got further funding now. So there's a further two, £20 million investment to help develop technology because at sporting events live events gigs anything like that what are you going to do you don't bring your own cup there's still a massive problem mm. this is how bars operate and so this could absolutely completely change everything and it's about plastic pollution in the oceans as well and it's one of those stories that why is it tucked away on page 22 yeah. there are lots of good news stories and it could be really pulled back because this is sort of exciting mm. is that say plastic cup is not going to go away yeah lots of plastic cups at Eurovision it's Exactly, there will be, yes. <laughs> and if you are completely sick of Eurovision, and yes. I get it that not everybody loves it, uh, you might just want to hide yourself away in a cave you for might. the next couple of days. Uh, and apparently you can buy an actual cave. This is so exciting. And I'm calling on any millionaires to be friends with me immediately because we could do things with this cave. There is a cave in Torquay called Kent's Tavern, which also has a visitor centre. It has an enormous 100-person restaurant. It has bars and it probably has a lot of plastic cups that need uh, the additive in it. Um, you can buy it for between 2 and 2.5 million. You can make an offer. Your very own cave. And how exciting would that be? And imagine the events that you could put on in and around the cave. And imagine... As you say, if you just really want to hide away or everything gets a bit tricky on the world stage, there's your cave to go in and no one will bother you and you'd be safe and warm. <laughs> Sean, I'm going to have to let you go because I know you've got to go and practice for your live draw. Just give us those details again. My Twitter handle is Sean, S-I-A-N underscore Superman. That's where it will all be happening. And if you look up Just Giving... Sean's Eurovision live draw, you will find the page to be able to donate. And please donate, even if it's a pound. Or if not, spread the word. Absolutely. And what you get for that, in a lucky dip, is a, a, a Eurovision uh, picture, painting, that yes. you do whilst Eurovision's absolutely. on. So it's three minutes per picture, which I think is absolutely extraordinary. <laughs>
<laughs> Congratulations to you. Uh, now, you. Uh, we are going to have more news about art in just a moment. Now, Taiwan's biggest art fair, Taipei Dangdai, opened in the Taiwanese capital yesterday. Monocle's Naomi Su Elegance spoke with Dangdai's co-director, Robin Peckham, to hear about the fair and Taiwan's evolving art scene. It's an extremely exciting year for us because we're returning to our full format after what's essentially been three years away. We first ran the fair for the first time in 2019, and then we ran it again at a slightly larger version in 2020. And then, of course, the pandemic disrupted so much of the world. And while we have managed to run smaller versions of the fair in the intervening years, I think this is really the time when we're bringing the international audience back to Taipei. We have this year 90 galleries, which is similar to what we had in 2019-2020. As a fair, we're very focused on Asia. Our real marketplace is the Taiwanese collectors. And then we have interesting intersections with markets in Japan, Korea, China, Hong Kong, and Southeast Asia. We don't expect a lot of people traveling in from outside of Asia, with the exception, of course, of our galleries. And this year we have more international galleries than ever before. And many gallery owners are traveling in personally. We're very excited to show them kind of the best of everything that Taiwan has to offer and everything that's changed and developed over the last few years. How would you characterize the art scene in Taipei and Taiwan at large, both the collector side and the artists themselves? Taiwan, I think, uh, has this really impressive collecting tradition that comes from, of course, uh, Chinese antiquities, uh, if you look back uh, kind of a century ago, um, and then accelerated quickly maybe 40, 50 years ago with modernist Chinese painting um, and has really taken off through contemporary art as well. I think that makes for a really interesting dynamic uh, because it means that collectors are very serious about how they present themselves, um, their own connoisseurship. It also means that sometimes art has a less public presence in the city than it does in some other places. And so that's something where I think that Taipei Dangdai makes an appreciable difference uh, and that it puts this moment on the calendar uh, where people can come out um, society can get dressed up and kind of ex uh, celebrate art uh, for this weekend uh, and really have collectors coming toe-to-toe -to -toe with artists uh, and seeing what's happening in the galleries. I think that that's something that's going to continue happening over the next 10 years uh, as contemporary art really becomes a part of cultural life in Taipei. Um, the museums here, the galleries here, they all do a really good job of what they're meant to be doing in the sense that the museums, I think, have a really strong educational bent and they do a really good job of kind of uh, preserving the artistic heritage of Taiwan and the region. And the galleries, I think, do a good job of uh, cultivating their own collectors. And then sometimes it sort of takes these moments on the calendar to kind of explode those boundaries and bring everybody together. Uh, so you have people uh, meeting each other from across scenes and across categories. And that, I think, can bring a new energy, uh, not only to the art market, uh, but really to the cultural scene. You mentioned that there will be 30 new galleries coming this year. Where are they coming from? And what are some of the galleries you're most excited about? Uh, so galleries Taipei Dangdai come from all over the world. Um, like I said, this is our most international roster of galleries yet. Um, we have new galleries from Los Angeles, like Nino Meyer, uh, from New York, like The Hole. 
um, and also from Taipei, uh, where we have two galleries showing with us for the first time. Uh, one is Iyun, uh, which is a space that specializes in contemporary art with a kind of traditional aesthetic. And the other is Solid Art, uh, which is a gallery that I'm personally extremely excited about uh, because they're representing uh, local artists with a much more conceptual bent uh, than I think is the norm in the Taiwanese scene. Over the years, have you noticed a growing interest from international collectors in Taiwanese art? I think that Taiwanese art still has a long way to go in terms of its recognition on the international scene. Uh, the quality is very much there. I think there are as many exciting emerging artists from Taiwan right now as there are from Hong Kong, from Singapore, even from China. Uh, but at the same time, I think the art world doesn't really know what to do with Taiwan. They know that it's a great market, uh, but it's unclear kind of how Taiwanese artists fit into broader collecting strategies uh, at the international institutions. Uh, and I think that's made it difficult for individual collectors as well to really get a handle on what's happening with art from Taiwan. Uh, and so that's a, a situation where we really like to use our resources to promote the Taiwanese artists to the extent that we can. Um, of course, a fair is a very open platform and galleries largely bring uh, what they think works best in a particular market. But anywhere where we have the latitude to make decisions, uh, we like to showcase Taiwanese art. Um, so one area like that would be Node, which is our sector for uh, large-scale public art. Uh, this year we have four large-scale installations in the fair, three of which are from Taiwanese artists or groups. Um, and I think that's really important that, um, you know, whatever people are photographing at the fair, whatever is going out in the media, that what you see first is Taiwanese art, even if uh, the collectors at the fair are there to buy, of course, not only Taiwan, but the best from around the world. I I'd like to emphasize how much exciting development has happened in Taipei over the past few years. Uh, and I think that while Taiwan is just really reopened to the broader public uh, for the last few months. Um, there's so much here uh, and so much new development happened during the pandemic that it's really worth a trip uh, to come see everything that's been going on, uh, which includes, of course, not only our fair, uh, but also institutions outside the Taipei Performing Arts Center designed by Rem Koolhaas, uh, that just opened uh, about a year ago. Um, there's a new calligraphy museum uh, in Taoyuan called the Hangshan Calligraphy Museum. Uh, there are all kinds of new design spaces that are opening up, uh, heritage buildings that have been renovated and turned into really nice bars, restaurants that play with the local cuisine. Uh, so I, I think Taiwan is no longer kind of the sleepy but fun place that it once was. I think there's a real energy in Taipei right now, and I think that uh, it deserves a real audience, and I hope that everyone uh, can find time to come check it out. That was Robin Packham, who was speaking to Naomi Sue Elegant. And the Taipei Dang Dai is on at the moment. Now, finally, Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, shares everything we've learned this week. We learned this week that Donald Trump, Donald Trump of all people, and you may wish to have the smelling salts within reach and ready access to a fainting couch, is some sort of massive creep with a predatory attitude to women. We were, yes, as shocked as you are. Where will it end? Might we also learn that Donald Trump, Donald Trump as we live and breathe, is also a crook, a grifter and a prize buffoon who has never picked up a book except those he has pretended he wrote. Verily, the can is open and the worms are everywhere.
It feels like up is down, white is black, and nuts is... Soup. Soup. We learned of this hitherto unthinkable aspect of the former president's character via a civil trial in New York City. So this jury has found that former President Trump sexually abused Eugene Carroll, which means that they have found him liable for battery. This is a form of sexual assault, though they did not find... We shortly thereafter learned that Trump intended to respond to this damning judgment and the accompanying presentation of a bill for $5 million with a period of somber, penitent reflection. I don't even know who this woman is. I have no idea who she is, where she came from. This is another scam. It's a political witch hunt. We had, in fairness, previously learned via Trump's pre-trial deposition that he was unable to tell his accuser from a woman he'd actually married. It's Marla. You say Marla's in this photo? That's Marla, yeah. That's, that's my wife. Which woman are you pointing to? No. Here. Tara. Oh, that, the oh, person okay. you just pointed to was oh, Eugene Carroll. Who is that? Who is this? Point. Still, we did, of course, learn that Trump's fellow Republicans were willing and able to look past their partisan fealties in the interests of preserving the integrity of the office which Trump once held and to which he once again aspires. Well, look, I, I think that case is illustrative of what's gone wrong in this country. Simply put... The Democrats don't want to have a debate about prosperity and peace, about the failures of the Biden administration. They want to try to destroy this guy through the legal process. Yeah, I think the New York legal system's off the rails when it comes to Donald Trump. What's happening in some of these courtrooms in, in Manhattan, I don't even know. I'm not going to get into it. It's a jury of his peers finding him. Oh, come on, man. Serious? Don't say that stuff to me. That might work for somebody else. That definitely don't work for me. The jury of my peers? Yeah, whatever the party there of law and order. Sticking with the subject of paranoid potentates with throbbing foreheads full of Botox lashing out violently in denial of recognition that their best days are behind them, we learned that Russian President Vladimir Putin may have fewer tanks to play with than previously. Compare and contrast. This was the armoured contingent of the 2021 Victory Day Parade in Moscow, i.e. the last such wingding before these divisions were dispatched on their lightning 72-hour conquest of Ukraine, now in its 15th month. Lack something without the visuals, but the sound you can hear beneath the patriotic parping of the brass band is the rumble and growl of mighty columns of modern T-90s thundering across the cobblestones of Red Square circa two years back. This year, we learned, Russia's tank troops were to be represented on Victory Day by... Uh, The sound beneath the patriotic parping you can hear there is the somewhat less awe-inspiring sputter and fut of a solitary T-34, admittedly clearly given a coat of paint sometime between last Tuesday and the Battle of Kursk, but nevertheless the kind of vehicle less likely at this point to strike fear into the hearts of enemies than it is to arouse the keen interest of the kind of people who spend their weekends dressed in period uniforms in muddy paddocks, carefully reenacting key scenes from military history.
which is possibly appropriate given that Putin himself seems weirdly determined upon playing the part of Tsar Nicholas I, i.e. dismal reactionary authoritarian who picks a fight with what he thinks is a weak neighbour seeking what he expects to be an easy win before getting tubbed by an international coalition and losing his grip on the Black Sea. Entertaining yet informative. What we learned every week on Monocle Radio. Come on. Just get on with it. We learned, however, that despite an apparent shortage of equipment, Russia had nevertheless decided to go to war on another front. Specifically... There goes the onion man. He smells like heaven. Already drunk at 9.15. Though the air is bitter cold, and I'm constantly patrolled, I've never felt so much at home. Against the American animated series Family Guy in episodes of the latest series of which regular character Meg Griffin settles down in Chelyabinsk, the cartoon depictions of which sat badly with Russian MP and former MTV presenter Yana Lantratova, who represents the city in question in the State Duma in Moscow. We learned that Ms Lantratova had demanded that Family Guy be banned, and we learned that her specific grievances were as follows, as will now be voiced by Monocle's attention-seeking self-pity desk chief, Tamsin Howard. This is a deliberately offensive artistic image that has nothing to do with reality. This is a deliberate work against our country, information warfare through artistic works. They deliberately create an image of Russia as a country where everyone is unhappy with life. Drinking, using drugs, taking bribes. We still have that awkward coughing clip, right? (coughs) Bit more, maybe. (coughs) And... (sighs) Gesù santo, ma davvero, non ci posso credere. We learned that the government of Italy had gone into emergency conclave to consider surging prices of pasta. And yes, we're aware that you've all seen where this is going. We'll be as quick as we can. There are concerns that a 17.5% year-on-year spike in the price of pasta has caused a great many budget-conscious Italians to resort to... Penne pinching. (laughs) For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. Many thanks there to Andrew. And that's it for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer in London, Nora Hull, and our producer, Isabella Jewell. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. And up next, a look at the world of magazines with Monocle's senior correspondent and Eurovision correspondent, Fernando Augusto Fischeca, on The Stack. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>